Susanna Clark recently wrote a novel called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and it's set in kind of 19th century England, so think Napoleon, Sherlock Holmes, stuff like that. And it starts with this observation that magic has vanished from England, that no one has seen a real magician perform real magic in about 300 years. Yet, in spite of that, uh, there were actually gentlemen in England, gentlemen in York and Yorkshire, that's where this is set, who claimed to be magicians. They still enjoyed this status of being some of the wisest and most reputable men in Yorkshire, in spite of the fact that they had never cast a single magical spell in their whole life. They'd never made a single leaf quiver. They'd never made a single hair move on anyone's head. They instead, uh, they gathered and they debated the theoretical aspects of magic. They would argue about the history of different tricks. Um, they would nitpick its origins. They would gather monthly to read long, academic, dry papers together about magic. So their understanding of magic was actually quite boring and lifeless. And then, so in the midst of all this, uh, Mr. Norrell arrives on the scene and he does the unexpected. He actually is a real magician who can do real magic. And he goes into the Cathedral of York and he makes all of the statues come to life. They start singing, they start talking. And as I encountered this story, I felt a little bit of uh, sympathy for some of these characters. It actually, it was a little bit, little bit painful when I was encountering this story because the magicians of Yorkshire are similar to me in, in more way more ways than one. They claimed to be magicians, but they were only theoretical magicians. And I claimed to be a Christian, but in many ways and in many days of my, my life, as short as it's been, I felt like a theoretical Christian. I'm very fluent in the facts of Christianity. I know a lot about the Bible and biblical history. I can talk about culture and apologetics and theology for a long time. But when I encountered this, this story, I felt this gap between knowing about God and actually knowing him personally. You can know a lot about a person without actually knowing them. And so at times in my own life, I reflect and I, I feel that my faith has sometimes felt like this compartmentalized part of my life. It's distinct and separate from other parts of my life. And this, this isn't even because I've never had... Um, profound or even miraculous spiritual events. I, I can attest that I've seen miracles in my life. But these big things of the Christian life and even these regular reoccurring small little things, they still felt disconnected from my day-to-day -day life. My normal life sometimes feels oddly irreligious. And I won't ask you to publicly answer, but do you ever feel like the, the fake magicians you could talk about God for a long time, but maybe it's, it's been a long time since you've talked to God or since you felt like God even talked to you. Does Christianity feel like just one of the many parts of your life, one thing amongst others, something that gets tacked on to the weekend if there's time? And I'm not, I'm not even talking about people who wouldn't consider themselves to be strong Christians. I'm talking about people who've committed their lives to walking with Jesus, to loving God and loving others, yet they still feel this cognitive dissonance between how they would describe the world to be and how they actually experience it. Why is there such a gap between what we believe and what we feel?
between our heads and our hearts? Why does so much of our normal life feel irreligious? Why does the gap exist? And more importantly, what do we do about it? Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22 as we learn how to bridge the gap between the head and the heart? Currently, we are on week four of our Made New to Renew series where we're seeing how our personal renewal that happens at Easter, our new life in Christ, is tied to or perhaps leads to the renewal of the world around us. We're we're commanded in scripture to be in the world and not of it. Yet, God also commands his people in Jeremiah. He says to them, hey, seek the welfare of the city where I've placed you. Because in their welfare, you will find your own. So our new life is for the life of the world. We are made new to renew. We're freed from the enslavement of the old life of sin. And we're freed for this new life with God and bringing in his kingdom of heaven to the world and sharing his love and renewal and redemption with all things. Okay, so first we looked at money. Because we have different areas of our, in our lives and what renewal looks like will look differently depending on the circumstances. And good godly wisdom is knowing what that looks like in these different areas. We looked at money, for example. We saw that we are freed from things, from the tyranny of things, from the love of money. And we're actually freed for generosity. That when I'm not a slave to money, I can actually use it to bless people. I'm not using people to love money. I'm using money to love people. We saw that with about money. Then we looked at the concept of work and how we're freed from pride in the workplace. We're freed from simply using people as rungs on a ladder, a socioeconomic ladder, a career ladder. uh, What's the term? A social ladder, that's it. We're freed from pride in the workplace and using people, and we're freed for genuine, humble, godly service. We can actually serve people. We don't have to use them to exalt ourselves. Last week, we looked at how we are free from hurry, and we are freed for rest. We're freed from this life of hurry, where we have no time for anything, no time to love people, no time to love God, and we're freed from that life of hurry into this unhurried life of rest. And with this unhurried life, we're now free to live the type of life that we ought to. How ought we live? What's the most important thing for us to do? Let's turn to Matthew 22. I'm going to be reading from verses 34 to 39. But when the Pharisees heard that he had, this is Jesus, silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important law? Of all the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament, of all the ways that humans ought to live, what is the most important thing? And Christ answered by quoting Deuteronomy 6. You love God. You love him with your whole person, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with all your strength. Human beings have different components. One way of describing human beings is as homo sapiens, that means thinking things. But another way of describing human beings is as homo adorans, which is an adoring thing, a loving thing. We have a head and a heart. We have cognition and we have affection. 
we have the will, and we have the passions. And so during our detox series, actually right before Easter, we looked at the importance of rightly ordered loves, of having our loves properly prioritized, of learning the Christian life to love what we ought and not love what we not ought to. So in the Christian life, this involves learning to love God and learning to hate sin, seeing the world for what it is. The medievals, actually, they summed up, they called this the virtue of prudence. And they described the virtue of prudence as this, a man is wise if all things taste to him as they really are. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we're called to love God, love him with our whole being, to see him as he really is. Yet, as we seek to do this, there's a challenge. And the challenge is that we live in a world, we breathe the air, we live in the culture, we swim in the waters of a place that doesn't always help with this. Right? That's not a controversial point. Many times, it's counterproductive. The values of our culture and the values of God's kingdom don't always overlap. We praise God when it does, but most times they're actually at odds. It isn't the case. That's why we're told to be in the world, but not of it. Paul says in Romans 12 too, he says, do not be conformed to this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed to the age that you're in. Don't just be another product of your culture. Don't be discipled by your phone and your laptop and your TV and discipled by your social media posts and whatever's trending online, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be a product of this age. There's a Christian Canadian philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor. And when he was uh, reflecting on our current age, he said that we are living in a secular age. We live in a secular age. And some Christians have weird understandings of what's secular. They say, oh, that's secular music. Oh, light bulbs are secular. Oh, hamburgers are secular. You can understand secularism perhaps in terms of a country's laws, like a separation of church and state, if it's not a theocratic nation. That's one way to understand it. You could understand secularism even as just the broad religious attendance patterns of a nation. But Charles Taylor also describes secularism as the implicit background assumptions of a culture. So it's the backdrop assumptions of what is legitimate, what is believable, what options are on the table. It's the background assumptions that our life is actually lived against. For example, I'll illustrate this to you. 600 years ago, maybe 500 years ago, maybe even 400 years ago, it was functionally almost impossible not to be religious. Being religious was the default. It dictated and ordered all parts of your life, even how you planted your seeds and harvest your crops. And if you were not religious, you were outside the norm, maybe you were viewed with suspicion and you were expected to give an explanation for why you would hold such strange beliefs. And today it's the exact opposite. Non-religious views are the default. That is the normal state of being. And if you have religious views, they're kind of viewed as suspicious, outside the norm, and you're expected to give an explanation. Why, why do you think that? That's not the normal state of things. So we're in the exact opposite situation. And in this book by Charles Taylor, it's like this thick, he outlines how we got from there to here. He outlines some of the facets and elements of this secular age. And one of the things that he outlines is that a mark of our secular age is that we live inside of an imminent frame. There's two parts to that 
that term, imminent frame. So first, understand that a frame is something that focuses your attention on some things and it excludes other things. You put a frame around a picture and that says, this is where the picture begins, this is where the picture ends. This is the frame of reference. If you make a frame, even with your fingers like this, you can do it. You notice that there's a lot that's outside and only a few things that are actually inside. So that's the frame. He says, we live in an imminent frame. So imagine dividing up the world between the transcendent and the imminent. The imminent is that which is here and now, that which you can taste, touch, and see. And that which is transcendent, literally it transcends, it is above the imminent. It's outside of space, it's outside of time. So something transcendent might be uh, the concept of God, religious concepts, concepts of spirituality, even metaphysics and things like that. And Charles Taylor says that a mark of our secular age is that we live inside of an imminent frame. Our culture frames our reference in a way that is purely imminent. It blocks out anything which is transcendent. And this is what happens in the background. So our frame of reference, our frame of understanding the world, our frame of imagination, of imagining all that's there, it is thoroughly imminent. The here and now is our frame for understanding the world and it blocks out any concepts of transcendence. Okay? Now one of the effects of living inside an imminent frame is disenchantment. This is all going to make sense. We live in a secular age and in the secular age our viewpoint on life is inside an imminent frame. And the fact of living in this imminent frame is that we seem to occupy a disenchantment enchanted world. A disenchanted world is a world devoid of anything spiritual and supernatural. It's an empty and cold universe. We are alone. Life is pointless and there is no providential being who pours out benevolent care. That is a disenchanted understanding of the world. And he says that we live in an imminent frame that creates a disenchanted view of the world. Our perspective is limited to the here and the now, and that means that we are alone, that life is pointless, there is no God who cares for us. You don't believe me? Check the temperature of Twitter on any given day. The world is going to burn up from global warming, it's going to blow up from global conflict, the economy is going to collapse, I will never be able to afford a house. There are fringe cultural forces that are growing into existential threats. New variants are on the rise. Life is cruel and pointless and devoid of any source of hope outside of scientific innovation. Whenever there's a massacre or a tragedy that happens, you can always see this happen in the, the comment sections online, someone will say, that's terrible, thoughts and prayers going out your way. And then someone will respond, ha, how about you actually do something? And do you see how? Built into that dialogue is the assumption that prayer isn't actually doing anything. You can even see this with some of the uh, most influential thinkers and philosophers of the last hundred years. Albert Camus, he said this, Man stands face to face with the irrational. He feels within him his longing for happiness and for reason. The absurd is born of this confrontation between the human needs and the unreasonable silence of the world. He says that life is absurd. Humanity feels a hunger for meaning, for transcendence, for love and purpose, but he's met with just the silence of this cold, indifferent, empty universe. And he says the purpose of life is to learn to live with this absurd contradiction, absurdism in philosophy. This is from the myth of Sisyphus. 
Arthur Schopenhauer, he said this, There is not much to be got anywhere in the world. It is filled with misery and pain. If a man escapes these, boredom lies in wait for him at every corner. Nay, more. It is evil which generally has the upper hand and folly that makes the most noise. Fate is cruel and mankind pitiable. And I could give you 10 more quotes from equally influential thinkers at the time. So our cultural imagination is thoroughly disenchanted. We swim in waters that are wholly secular. We breathe it in. And without knowing it, we too can seep in these thought patterns and this imagination that is thoroughly secular. And so what's the, the first step to redeeming our minds from this disenchantment? Well, it's recognizing that our world is disenchanted and that we are disenchanted. The disenchantment of our age actually shows up in many areas of our own personal Christian lives. First, this affects how we approach and interact with prayer. In a disenchanted world, solitude is terrifying because when you're in solitude, you're actually truly alone. And how often do we avoid times of quiet solitude with God because we feel like we're alone, we're not actually aware of his presence? Or perhaps this even affects how we pray, the posture we bring with, maybe in the back of our minds, subconsciously, we're not expecting to hear from God. We're not expecting him to actually hear from us either. And so we just recite our prayers with this default posture of our heart that I'm just going through the motions. But I'm just gonna throw these out there and if the shoe fits, I hope you run with it. Perhaps one more. Maybe this also affects the way that we pray for God to move in the world. If someone starts praying for a healing, we get a little bit uncomfortable. We hope that they say, Lord, if you will it, would you heal this person? Because if they don't say, if you will it, it can make things a little bit uncomfortable because perhaps we don't 100% have faith that God is going to move in this place. That's how disenchantment can affect our prayer lives. Disenchantment can also affect how we approach and interact with events in our lives. This is interesting. I, I was reading a, a book about this. And even the Christian desire for large, spectacular, grand, miraculous events can be a product of disenchantment because perhaps we don't see God in our day-to-day -day, or we don't believe that God is in our day-to-day -day events and activities. So if we want to encounter God, if we actually want to see God move in our lives, we have to go to a concert or a conference. Perhaps our hunger for spectacle in the church can be an effect of not believing or not seeing God in our day to day. And perhaps this affects how we approach and interact with scripture itself. Perhaps we approach the Bible like we would any other disenchanted ancient document. Maybe we look down our noses at it because we're in a time in history that is more scientific innovation than the people who wrote this. Maybe we feel morally superior to the people at the time there. And so we just take the Bible, we break it down into its components, place it on the table, try and torture out some good moral principles. And we measure the value of this based upon utility and pragmatism, like any other disenchanted document. And this has consequences. All of these have consequences. Why? Because if on some level, we're doubtful of God's actual presence in the world. It's no wonder that we might confuse abstract biblical knowledge with spiritual life. This is the mistake of the York magicians, the theoretical magicians. Have you ever encountered someone who has 
an encyclopedia level of biblical knowledge, but is joyless, harsh, and miserable to be around. Or the cliche stories of servers at restaurants dreading the Sunday afternoon rush because Christians are the most rude and least generous patrons at the restaurant. The unchanged lives of Christians with vast technical knowledge of scripture and theology illustrates some of the consequences of disenchantment. We reduce Christian life to head knowledge and we fail to attend to our personal character and to the relationships around us. So being a disciple of disenchantment is wholly incompatible with being a disciple of Jesus. This impedes our love. We can hardly be said to loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength when we view God as distant, inactive, impartial, inconsequential, and impotent. So why is there such a large gap between what we believe and what we feel? We are disciples of disenchantment. Now, one of the marks of our new life is that we are freed from disenchantment. And it may not be instantaneous, but we're learning to be freed from these old ways of thinking, of imagining the world, and of seeing ourselves in it. And we learn the glorious, beautiful truth that there is an eternal God, perfect in all of his attributes, overflowing in his love, who dwells with us. Isaiah 7, 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So one mark of the Christian walk, of the renewal and transformation of our minds is being re-discipled and training our minds in the truths of God's word and the wonder of the Christian life and to the truth that we are never alone. So, we're going to learn to reclaim the disenchanted areas of our life and fill them with wonder, aligning our minds with the wonder of heaven. Just like you can train your ear, or train your eyes, or train your palate, you can train your mind and your imagination more specifically. We can do this by bringing the heavens to our mind and bringing our mind to the heavens. So today we're going to look at just a few ways that we can easily bring transformation into our prayer life and how we interact with scripture and how we operate in our day-to-day lives. The first way we can understand this is when we engage with scripture by simply letting God form our imagination. In fostering a right perspective of the world, we also need to fight to preserve the Bible's original character as a love letter. The Bible is dialogue between a lover and the beloved. The voice that rings from the Bible when we read it, is the voice that we long to hear, that we long to know, and we long to find our rest in. And so we come to Scripture as whole persons, those who think, feel, imagine, and need to find nourishment on all levels. So when we're looking to train our mind and our appetites and our desires to see and savor God in our world, we can scarcely do better than the authors of the Bible themselves. So let's take Psalm 8, for example, just a few verses The first four verses, David says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes, babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
David sees God's greatness proclaimed in all the earth. It's saturated in his glory. When he looks at it, it causes him to wonder at the God who made it all. Even in the gurgles and noises that babies make, he sees God's strength. When he looks at the heavens, the moon and the stars, not only does he wonder about them, but it causes him to think the God that made the cosmos, the God that made these stars and galaxies and constellations, isn't it amazing that he cares about me. The God who made infinite space has a space in his heart for me. And so we can follow in David's footsteps. We can think his same thoughts after him. We can let his questions guide ours and let his thought process expand our range of thoughts and experiences and emotions as we approach scripture. So try reading the Psalms. Try praying the Psalms as an opportunity, as, as training wheels, not even as training wheels. This is good, mature believer or new, for learning how to stretch and develop and train and hone our imaginations. You can also look to the prophets. The prophets also paint wonderful, awe-inspiring images of God. Here's a couple of verses from Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 15. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Look how the prophet trains our mind. He looks at his hands and he thinks that God holds all of the oceans of the world in his hands. He looks at the mountain ranges and he thinks, huh, those kind of look like the weights that are put on scales. The Himalayans, the Rockies, Mount Everest, all of these are but weights that God uses in a scale. He measures the expanses of the cosmos as if with a measuring tape. He needs no help. He's never asked for advice. He's never been puzzled or frustrated or confused. All knowledge, all justice are essential parts of his being. And all the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Yet, what is the title of Isaiah chapter 40? Comfort for God's people. That God's immensity, his eternal power, should give us comfort. How much better a view of the human life than Camus and Schopenhauer? How much more beautiful is this? So we can let God train us in, this, in these ways. We can also let God form our perspective. One practice that Christians have performed over the centuries, it was inspired by the Desert Fathers, these are third and fourth century Egyptian monks, is called breath prayers. It's very simple. They're prayers that are one sentence that can be recited in one breath. They would do it throughout the day as they worked and as they breathed. And breath prayers have strong roots in various traditions of the Christian faith, um, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Catholic tradition. It hasn't taken up roots as strongly in evangelicalism, and I think to our detriment. But breath prayers are a simple way 
to ground our mind in the reality of the truth. So one of the famous prayers from the Desert Fathers that still remains with us today, it's called the Jesus Prayer, and it's this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here the monks are simply repeating back the words that the tax collector said to Jesus. So you would pray the first half of this in your mind as you breathe in, and you would pray the second half as you breathe out. You can try this together, we'll try this together. As you breathe in, think the first half. So breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here are a few others. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So when I'm thinking about how I personally, I'm never gonna be able to afford a house. I'm never gonna have a backyard for my dog. If we ever have kids, I won't be able to have enough rooms for all of them. I can't have a study. I can't prep sermons in peace. Maybe, maybe I need a second job. Maybe I need a better paying job. I catch myself in these cycles and I remind myself of this. I do the breath prayer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here's two more, Psalm 121.2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Praying the Psalms, it's good practice. Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I feel overwhelmed and anxious and frustrated, pray this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I'm enraged at the injustice of the world, when it seems like the rich and powerful can do whatever they want without any consequence, and the people who pay the price are the vulnerable, working citizens of the country. I pray Psalm 140:12. The Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. The Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Here's two more, Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And do you see how with these prayers, I'm taking my circumstances and my emotions and I'm pairing them with the reality that there is a God who is good and loving and just and that I'm never alone in my fear, that I'm provided for, that the universe is not empty and cold, but filled with the presence of a loving Father. That's another way that we can disciple our mind and our imaginations. Life with God reorders the world and it invites us into silence and solitude where our simmering anxieties and sorrows can be brought in to God's healing presence. But it isn't simply a call to withdrawal. Uh, we're called to pay attention to the enchanted world around us in a new way, to be open to the possibility of encountering God at any moment. Simone Weil, uh, a French philosopher, she said that attention at its most realized is like prayer. She said this, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. If we turn our mind toward the good, it is impossible that little by little, the whole soul will not be attracted thereto in spite of itself. That paying attention trusts that there is a God out there. That's the faith part. 
And it's a longing to be in communion with him. That's the love part. Attention, prayer requires faith and trust. To pay attention is to attend to something. It's simply to be present. We attend because the world isn't cold, but because it's saturated, filled with the presence of God. Robert Kappen wrote, Man's real work is to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does. And man was not made in God's image for nothing. We learn to pay attention and are served also by those among us who are most gifted in directing our attention to the glory of God, a.k.a. the artist. The artist has a prophetic role with the artist as prophet. Prophet simply means to be for God speaking, to speak for God. And the commanding attention, it's actually the work of the artist throughout the ages. Let me show you. So take the Renaissance, for example. How Renaissance artists, Renaissance sculptures drew attention to the human form, to proportions of the world, to exact precision and proportion of the face and the human body and all the intricacies and details of it. And then the focus begins to shift over time in different areas of art. If you look at the Baroque period, this is a piece by Rembrandt and how he used light to draw out emphasis on different elements of human interaction. He's a lot of paintings of different scenes from the Bible. They're very, very fascinating. And then the, the shifting of light moved a little bit more into the Impressionist era, how Impressionist painters could use imprecise movements of a brush to draw out very precise ways of showing how the world actually appears to us in many ways. And then this, this focus on the, the viewer with the art began to develop more and more into the modern era where now art began less to focus on the object of our perception and more on actually the person themselves, the viewer. What is the experience of art? What is the subconscious mind of the viewer? And you can see this in work like, this is uh, Jackson Pollock, but also Barnett Newman, for example. But in all of these cases, they're calling for us to pay attention. They're making a frame for us. They're trying to draw out a facet and feature of the world, whether it's the modern industrialized world, or they're talking about consumerism, or they're talking about beauty, or the woman at the well. And this is done by chefs and film critics and sommeliers who help us focus on facets of the world. The food, the drink, the film, the literature, even photography does this. Let me prove it to you. I really like animal photography. And in this moment, when you see the red panda and you go, ha ha, ho, ho, look, stop right there. That, that moment of delight, that moment of pleasure, that moment of wonder and seeing God's creation, that is holy ground. That is how God views the world. He sees it and says it is good. He delights in his creation. G.K. Chesterton said that the sun rises every day because God says, do it again. And we are sharing in God's delight for creation. We are thinking his thoughts after him. When we listen to music, cello suites, Bach, or a solo by Miles Davis, they're giving us a foretaste of heaven. So to attend to the world simply means to be open to the possibilities of it. It's to cultivate an awareness that this is a cosmos and that all these things we encounter and experience is part of a wondrous conversation between us and God. Every moment beckons for us to look closer. So where in your life do you notice this crust of disenchantment forming? Does your prayer 
feel lifeless? Does God's word seem flat and dull? Does the world around you seem void and cold? What if God upheld every moment of our lives by the power of his word? What if he were living and active and gifting us with our next meal? What if we imagined a world where he weeps when we weep and he rejoices when we rejoice? What if we could connect with God in each of these moments? This is the importance of the Christian imagination. What flavor is to food, wonder is to theology. So what would our lives look like if we imagined and encountered the world like this? How would it affect our church? How would it affect the witness of our church? In the year 988, Vladimir the Great, he was the prince of Russia. He converted the Russian people after his scouts, envoys, and representatives returned from Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire, specifically the Hagia Sophia. And they brought word of the Christian art in these Greek churches. And when they heard news of this Christian art, of the beauty of it. Vladimir the Great decided to make his people and himself followers of Jesus. He wanted to know the God that inspired art like this. They wanted to know the God that shined through, shone through, (laughs) the God that could be seen through the art like this. They wanted to know the God that shone through this work. Around a thousand years later, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and show millions of readers the truth of the gospel and literature, making him the most influential apologist of that century. And so perhaps in a culture that is cynical about the goodness of Christianity, perhaps in a culture that is cynical about the truth of Christianity, maybe we can meet them with the beauty of Christianity and the gospel. This week, let us pray and ask God to see and savor the goodness of him in our lives around us, that by the power of his spirit, we may taste and see that the Lord is good. Last week, we saw how we're free from hurry and from rest. Our invitation from God was to be still. This week, we see how we are free from disenchantment and we are free for wonder. Our invitation from God is to behold. Be still and behold. This is our invitation, church. Let us respond in hope, faith, and love to the beauty of the gospel.